The reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thank you, Abby. I think we all agree that sounds much better than uh, the alternative. We are in our uh, Advent season, which means waiting, and as you know, we're going through the songs from Luke, and these songs are all um, pointing to this reality that Jesus has come, and something that Doug mentioned is that I would, I would talk about our song we sang this morning, Almost, Not Yet, Already. I love that song, uh, and, and in that song, Eve, or Mary is talking to Eve and saying, look, the sin that came through your womb has been healed by the Savior that's coming from my womb. And what we need to do as we come to Advent is recognize we're waiting for Jesus, but there's this sense of the already and the not yet. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's a sort of a theological jargon, but it, just, it simply means profoundly that in Christ, everything has been won. The war has been won, right? We are, we are adopted, if you are in Christ, as sons and daughters, but yet we are also at the same time not yet fully realizing the benefits of that. And so we're in, this, we're in this point of time where we're in the already and the not yet. And what I want to do this morning is look at the life of Simeon and really try to pick... He's a, he's a, mysteri- he's a mysterious guy, right? With, with Zechariah, we know who that is. John the Baptist's father. Uh, he's a priest. We know his family lineage. It's Elizabeth's husband. And he sings his, you know, his prophecy. We know who Mary is. But in this third look at the songs, you, you see a person in Simeon, we don't know who he is, he's mysterious. Uh, he really is this 
almost like a, a New Testament version of Melchizedek who shows up and, and he's filled with the Spirit and he points us to a way we ought to be thinking and living in the, in the modern time. What would it look like for you and I to have our lives connected to the already while we're in the not yet? What would that look like? How do we live out our life here longing for heaven and yet not disin- to where heaven is breaking in through our very everyday experiences? And so we're going to look at that in this passage, the, the, the theme will be that we can live our lives as though we are already saved because we are in the not yet of our, of our current situation, right? Here's how the uh, outline is going to go. I do outlines. This is for those that take notes. Almost, already, not yet. So it's the song we just sang. I'm just reversing the order a little bit. Almost, already, not yet. Doing that for dramatic effect. Okay, almost. Uh, in, in these um, passages, we see everybody's waiting. In fact, you heard, uh, as Abby read, um, the prophetess um, Anna shows up and, or, and, and she preaches or, or begins to prophesy, I should say, to those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so at that time, there's this expectancy, right? Everyone's ready and waiting. And in the same way, I think, uh, currently... We know that, right? We know as Christians that there's this longing, there's this waiting for Jesus, and we're not sure what that looks like or how long it's going to take. And in our passage with, with Simeon, um, it's, it's interesting how Mary and Joseph have come to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus uh, for the, the purification. And it says in Exodus 13:2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. So in Exodus, it says this, You shall set apart to the Lord all of the firstborn, all the first opens the womb. And so these, this young couple are celebrating or obeying this law from Exodus. And they show up, and they're going through these motions, and in comes Simeon. Right? And Simeon is, is righteous, the scriptures tell us. Right? Luke tells us he's devout. What does that mean? It simply means that he follows the law, okay? He's not sinless. But the devout part is, is really interesting. The devout part is he's longing for the consolation of Israel. Listen to how John Calvin says it. For no true worship of God can exist without the hope of salvation, which depends on the faith of his promises and particularly on the restoration promised through Christ. Now, since an expectation of this sort is commanded, commended in Simeon, it is an uncommon attainment. So because Luke is saying this is unique, it's assumed that not everybody there was experiencing the same feeling as Simeon. It says, Calvin goes on, we may conclude that there were a few in that age, that there were few in that age who actually cherished in their hearts the hope of redemption. All had on their lips the name of the Messiah and the prosperity under the reign of David, but hardly anyone was found to be uh, was to be found patiently enduring the present infliction and relying on, okay, it's a lot of words, the conciliatory, the consultory assurance of the redemption of the church. Here's what's going on. Calvin is saying, in Simeon, we see the way it should have been. Everybody sort of kind of knew there might be this Messiah coming, that Israel was lost, that, that Rome had taken over, but, but Simeon is pointing us for us the way of what it really looks like to be devout to be longing, to be waiting. Have you ever been waiting for a package at your house? 
few weeks ago, Hatfields called, said, hey, we might have a package showing up. You know, they had to go out of town. They alerted us, right? It's important. Um, how about a workman? Your heater goes out. It's three degrees outside. And you know that there's this window of time from, say, noon to three, where that person is going to show up. Your whole day becomes oriented around what? I want to be there. I don't want to miss this guy. Yet you have to live your normal life. So it's that trick balance, right, of how do I wait for what's really, really important while norm, having the normal day in and day out events of my life. That's sort of the idea of, of this longing. And I, I think it really forces us to ask the question, are our lives oriented around a longing for Jesus? And I'm talking to Christians. Or are we caught up so much in the culture that that's sort of this future reality that we don't really look for? If I'm honest, often I say I want that, but if you look, as Shane mentioned earlier, at my liturgies, the things of our life, what I'm looking forward every day, you might not see that all the time. And our job or our, our excitement this time of year is to reorient that, isn't it? To reorient the affections of our heart toward the longing for the Messiah. But why would we do that? And that, that's going to lead us into the, really the heart of this discussion. Because of the already, okay? Simeon shows up, he's devout, the Spirit is with him, and he sees this child. And, and it's fascinating that um, with Mary and with Zechariah, when they first heard how God was going to carry out this plan, there was sort of a, what? How? This is going to happen? But with Simeon, that's completely absent. He sees this baby. Now, I don't want to put words in our mouths, but I think many of us would go, a baby? You know, a, I'm at the temple. I'm looking for the Messiah. And there's this mom with a little baby. He takes the baby, and he says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. And it's fascinating that he's saying this in a past tense way. Sorry about all the pops and the noises here. And I'm making it even more awkward by mentioning it and then lowering this. Simeon is proclaiming that Christ is the culmination of history. And he's excited. He sees a baby, but for him, he's not thinking, okay, how long is this going to take? What's every day going to look like? He's just worshiping. That's really what he's doing. And so I, I want us, as we think about the gospel and think about this time of year, to, to find ourselves drawn into the reality of the story. If you look at Mary's song and Zechariah's prophecy as well, both of them allude to the covenant made with Abraham. And so what Simeon is doing in, in conjunction with these other songs is they're all three saying there is this storyline that starts with Eve and sin, right? And then Abraham comes along and God promises Abraham that a seed will come that will reverse the curse, right? That will, that, will, that will take away the sins of the world. That's not how he words it to Abraham. But that's how they heard it. And he says, all nations will be blessed through this seed. And so for Simeon, he shows up and he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon is seeing that this already has happened. It's, it's exciting. And I, and I think for us in the New Testament, what Simeon's doing there is he's giving us a picture of what it might look like. See, when Simeon was finished praising God, he went home, right? We're going to talk about that in a moment with the not, with the not yet. But, 
when, when, the, when the shepherds go out and they praise the baby and they see Jesus, they're praising God for salvation, but they have to go home, right? And they have to live out the rest of their shepherding career. And so here you and I are, and we hear these words, and we're like, Jesus has come. And what we know is that he not only has come, but he's fulfilled all these prophecies, and he's di- you know, he died on the cross, as Simeon prophesied, and he's ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. And then I think we're left with this kind of question mark of, what does that mean for us now? Right? What does the already look like today? And I want to just point us to a few scriptures to show us that uh, it, it's a very rich inheritance that we have. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, Simeon sees a baby, right? And the way he, he's filled with the Spirit, and the way he interprets it is, it's as if I'm already in glory. Heaven has broken in. And Paul interprets that for us, right? He tells us the Spirit has come, right? In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what, what Paul is saying in those two places is you and I, if we have Christ, have been completely redeemed. We are a new creation. The Spirit is upon us. And, and, and it's so profound that sometimes when you read Paul, it's as if he wants us to live each moment as if it were true. Right? Isn't that how Paul writes it? He doesn't want us to go, I don't really feel that way. Maybe if I felt more like this, I'd be nicer to my spouse or my child or my coworker. No, he's actually writing it as if to say, by faith, this is true of you. Um, in our confession, I don't quote the confession a lot. And unfortunately, the, the part I downloaded is an older English version. But I would commend everyone read the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith, especially the first like, 35, 36 questions. They're very short. But it says this, listen, what is justification? It is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins. He accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, received by faith alone. What is adoption? The very next question. It is an act of God's free grace where we are received into the number and have all the right and privileges of sons of God. Okay? This is the already. This is what you have right now. What is sanctification? It is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The last question I'm going to read, question 36. What are the benefits which accompany justification, adoption, sanctification? The benefit that accompanies justification, adoption, and sanctification this is how catechisms work. They repeat things, so you're getting it right. Is that you have the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance to the end. That is the already. Do you believe that? When you see Simeon, what does he say? He, he, he's been anxious. He's been waiting. He's been told he's going to see the Savior, the Lord's Christ. And he shows up and he sees Jesus and he says, you're letting your servant, depart in peace. Peace. When's the last time you felt peace? I mean, true, deep peace. 
That is what the gospel offers you. That is what Jesus offers you. If you are in Christ, stop looking at your experiences. Stop looking at your struggles. We'll get to those in a moment. Stop even looking at your history and just look to Jesus and know that right now, if you believe in Christ, He is on you, He is in you, His Spirit is with you. And that is what defines you. Let nothing else define you. I, I saw, I saw a, uh, a Facebook post from another Christian that said something like, whatever defines you today can be changed in the future. And it was a proud post. And I wrote in, what does this mean? And I'm hoping he responds. Because I want to say, the only thing that should define you today is Jesus Christ. This was a Christian post. And so many Christians are living under that message. The message really of the law. The message that you are defined by your conduct. You're defined by your behavior. You're defined by your gifts, your, your past, your resume. Isn't that how we live? How many of you woke up this morning feeling like you were defined by the Son of God? How many of you woke up feeling like the Father in Heaven smiled on you? Shane preached two weeks ago, singing over you. Right? What would it take to believe that? Let's be honest. Most of us would say it would take a couple of really good days strung together. Maybe a month or two of not doing that thing. Maybe a feeling. Faith is apprehending of it currently, right now. Do you believe that? Jesus is so beautiful that for Simeon, he just lifts him up and says, I can depart in peace. But now I want to spend a few moments on the not yet. The already has to be what pulses through your mind through the rest of our discussion. But the not yet, what is the not yet, right? Listen to what Simeon says. He says um, in verse 33, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed to, that is opposed, And then verse 35 in brackets, it says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And so what you have for Simeon is he's holding up this child who's going to have to live a life of perfection, which he does, but he's going to be put on a cross, right? The sword will pierce him through. We sang in the hymn this morning for me and for you, right? And his own mother, and I think you and I also, will have swords pierced through us. Right? The not yet really begins with our coming to Christ and recognizing we ourselves have to be pierced. Right? We ourselves have to die. We ourselves have to take up our crosses right? and, and live our lives for Christ. And I think we uh, have a couple of um, ways we live out the not yet wrongly. I think one way we live out the not yet, the all, I'm sorry, we live out the already. The already is the gospel and the not yet, we often go, okay, that's going to be great when I die. That's probably what most of us do, right? Christianity is going to be really great when I die or when Jesus returns. Have you ever said those words? When I die or Jesus returns, that's when all, but right now, it's sort of like me and my attitude, my disciplines, my behaviors. And we just try to go about our lives keeping things sort of okay, not too messy, Right? Another way we do it, I think, is we get very caught up in redemption, but not for Christ, for maybe just for self. We get caught up in movements and ideas 
Uh, things that are really good, really great ideas, really good. I won't give examples because I'm not trying to pick anything specifically, but just we get caught up in actually trying to make life better, but we don't have any connection to Jesus, right? And so our not yet can be really messed up. But, but both, but Mar- okay, where am I? I have a place I want to go, but I want to make sure I'm... Do you, okay. Do you see the trouble in the not yet? That's what I want to know. Do you feel the tension? Not just in my sermon. Do you feel the tension in your life? When you hear the good news, do you feel that gnawing question, but what would that look like? Does that, I'm not, I mean, I really want to know. I feel that a lot. I, I feel like I see this glorious gospel, and then I see the every, everyday life, and I have no idea what the rest of my life looks like. And so I'm going to try to exercise, you know, and take care of my family and be a good dad, and all these things. But I, I'm not sure how to connect the dots, right? Well, the answer is coloring books. That's going to be my answer for you. Here's what I mean. When I was a kid, I was the worst colorer in the class. So the teacher passes out little sheets. You know what a coloring sheet looks like? It's a drawing, black contour lines, and your job is to color it. And I did what I, I didn't do the kind where like, I'm not talking about the whole this. I mean, you know, red here and green over here. And and I thought it looked kind of good. Until what? Until you saw the little girl, two, you know, two desks over. And it was like completely like perfect, right? I'm kind of the tortoise, she's the hare, right? I'm kind of the fast-paced one, I'm in a hurry. She's taking it easy, right? It, it's such a big deal that nowadays that they make them for adults. How many, raise your hand if you have adult coloring book. Thank you, Abby, a couple honesty. You know, this is the Zen Buddhism influence on our culture, let's be honest. But there is something soothing. It's like, okay, this is my contour. This is what I have. This is what I can color. I'm going to color it well. I actually think there's something very redemptive about that. Because so often, our version of Christianity is, how can I change the contours of my life? Right? And often, what God is saying is, here you go. Now do your best to flourish in this moment. Think of uh, Joseph. I mean, I'm my son's favorite son. We talked about this recently. And here I'm in prison. Instead of just kind of sulking and writing letters and getting angry, he was the best prisoner he could be. Right? Whatever God has given you, whatever that contour is, and it is dark often, it is difficult, I think the not yet is filled with the already by saying, Lord, bring heaven into this situation, into this circumstance. It's actually these constraints where I think growth can happen. We actually see that in art. Igor Stravinsky, who knows who that is? Does anyone know who that is? Okay, musicians. Listen to what he says. My freedom consists in my moving about within the narrow frame that I have assigned to myself for each one of my undertakings. I shall go even further. My freedom will be so much the greater and more meaningful the more narrowly I limit my field of action and the more I surround myself with obstacles. Whatever diminishes, constrains, diminishes, sorry, whatever diminishes constraint, diminishes strength. For him, getting rid of those constraints meant you're going to lose the art, the freedom, right? He says, the more constraints one imposes, one frees oneself of the claims that shackle the spirit. I've never written music like Igor Stravinsky, but, you know, poetry does this, right? 
Sonnets are very strict in how you write sonnets, and yet Shakespeare flourished in the writing of sonnets. Constraints create beauty, right? And so often uh, you, you think that if, we just, if I just didn't have this problem, life would just go really well, and it's through the difficulties where you see heaven breaking in and the gospel igniting you. And so the question is, what are your struggles, and what are your goals in those struggles? How are you trying to break free of those contours that have come your way. And let me give you some examples of your contours. It might be uh, a life situation, like a health situation, either yours or a spouse. It might be financial. It might be talent. Maybe you realize this is about as good as I'm going to get. This is kind of where I'm going to be. Right? It can be political. Obviously, for refugees in other countries, or people falsely accused. It could be um, struggle with sin. I think a lot of times our culture says, I shouldn't struggle with sin, so I'm going to redefine what sin is. And the Bible assumes very much so that we're going to struggle this side of heaven with our own flesh, right? Think of Paul uh, with his thorn in the flesh. We're not sure if it was a sin issue or a temptation or not, but we know he struggled and he called it a messenger of Satan. Yet Christ said, my grace is sufficient, right? So what do you do with your struggles? And where, where do we turn? We turn to the one who understands our struggles, right? Jesus. Probably the most, not the most, but one of the most amazing parts of this passage is almost very easy to miss. Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. There are two types of Old Testament uh, purifications going on. There's the fact that Jesus is the firstborn. We've already mentioned that. But there's something else from Leviticus chapter 12. I want to kind of read to you real quick. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh... Okay, I won't read all the details. I'm going to jump ahead a few verses. She needs to be clean, ceremonially. Okay, And then listen to verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb of a year old for burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove, singular, for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Let's look at our passage. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And then verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's so strange about that is the word there in verse 22, right? Mary needs to go have this sacrifice of two turtle doves because of her poverty, right? She doesn't have the money for the lamb. And it shows that their finances are, are tight. And it's not for Joseph. It's for just for Mary. So who is the there, right? So Calvin explains that Jesus is willingly allowing himself to be included to reveal that he was going to take the sins of the world. That the word there is important because Jesus himself is allowing him to be part of the purification. That's his way of identifying with you and I. And probably the most striking thing is that 
what is missing in that passage is the lamb. What is missing in that sacrifice. So here's Mary who knows she needs to be cleansed. And here's her baby who has no sin, who's allowing himself to be identified with sinful people, to be raised up, so that you and I may have hope as we face life in the not yet, as we face life without the already fully dominating our minds and our hearts and our realities, right? Um, I came across this story that I think illustrates this perfectly. A guy named Robertson McQuilkin. I've heard it years ago, and I just finally looked it up and really read through it. He was the president of Columbia Bible College in 1968, and he was married to a woman named Muriel, and they had a a really, from all I can tell, a a really great marriage. Six children, judge as you will, that was great for them. We had four, that was great for us. Some want one if you're in Colorado. Um, And they served God in Japan for 12 years. Awesome. We were there for just one, so they beat us there. Muriel comes back, and and he becomes the president, Robert, of this this, uh, Bible college. She has her own radio program. She teaches. I mean, she's really an amazing woman. But in 1978, he began to notice something. She would tell a story, and then, like five minutes later, tell the same story again. And he started to kind of notice this. In 1981, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And what he realized was, as the years went by, she became totally distressed whenever he would leave her. That became kind of the dominant way her Alzheimer's came out. If he ever left her to go do his duties, she would become distressed. And according to this story, one day he was um, trying to help her with her shoes and taking her shoes off, discovered her feet were bloody from walking. And he realized that in her amazing love for him, she had walked the half mile to his office and back so many times looking for him that her feet were bloodied and he realized he had to resign from his job. And so what's amazing about this man is here he is at maybe the height of his career, things are going great, and he's willing to actually step aside for his wife. Listen to his his dismissal letter. Here's what he wrote at the time. Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now, full time. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and the faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. There is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit, and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her, I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. He goes on to explain that for him, her love and and her need to be with him warmed his heart and showed him the love of Christ. So his contour, right? It, It was not what he wanted. Who goes to seminary 
and, and plans their career to, to stop early and take care of a spouse. No one plans that, right? She didn't plan on having her mind go the way it went. But in that, redemption came. And, and the already broke in in their lives in a very rich way, and the story passes on. And I guess I would ask, is, is, is that happening in your life? Are you accepting the things that God has given you and saying, Jesus, I want heaven to break in these areas for your glory. Are you filled with peace in such a way that you would do what he did there? Would you run after your spouse and love her in this way? I think what gives me comfort is that that is not even a glimmer of how your heavenly father loves you. You and I have lost our minds far worse than Muriel, right? We are hypocrites. We say one thing and do the other. We, we sin and repeat the sin and we struggle. We, we, we make vows, Lord, this year I'm going to read my Bible and we maybe don't read even a chapter. I mean, we struggle, right? And even those of us, if you like, no, I'm, I'm faithful, I'm committed, I'm walking with Christ, you know your heart. You know you are in need of a Savior. You know that you're prone to wander. And He pursues you. And He loves you, right? But not just bloody feet, right? A bloody lamb. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Is that your hope? Is that moving you this season? Is that longing for Him, not just one day, someday, when we see Him face to face, which is everything, but even now, in the mundanity of your life, is he breaking into these contours? Is that coloring page becoming rich and beautiful? Are you accepting who you are in Christ and growing in that way? I hope so. I hope this season, Christmas maybe takes on a new tincture for you and I. That Jesus can change and make all things new. And that doesn't just mean your whole life looks different. It's not the flipping of coloring pages out of anxiety because you're just stressed like I do Sudoku books. It's it's sticking with that one and diving in because of the peace you have in Christ. Let that be our hope. Let's pray. We are prone, Jesus, to want to wonder and, and want to jump into new things and new endeavors. Because when we stick with you, it exposes our heart. It exposes our vulnerabilities. It exposes our frailty. But that's the gospel. We rest in you. We need you. You are our lamb. You are the one that takes away our sin. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, as we celebrate this week, longing for your birth, Lord, though we know for, that not only have you been born, you lived a perfectly righteous life. You died on the cross for our sins. You rose again, and you are sitting at the right hand of God. We know that. I pray that would be meaningful. I pray your spirit would open our eyes to see that this life, is not separated from the life to come. The not yet that we feel today <clears throat> is completely connected to the already that we have in you. Let that drive our affections. Let that drive our liturgies. Let that drive our habits. Let that drive us to repentance, Lord, to love our neighbor, to love our spouses, to love our children, our co-workers, and ultimately to love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.